You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello, and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, we're going to take a look at a penalisation claim under the Protected Disclosures legislation. This is a case that was heard before the WRC in December of last year, but was only released in recent weeks. As you'll know, this legislation has recently been revised and the new legislation came into effect on the 1st of January this year. But the reason we've chosen this particular case to look at today is twofold. Firstly, this case illustrates just how far the definition of penalisation goes in this legislation. And now with that definition extended even further in the new act, it makes this point all the more important for employers. Secondly, it shows that notwithstanding how extensive this protection is, employers can still successfully defend a claim for penalisation. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last podcast. For those of you in the financial services sector, you'll be aware that the CBI's proposals for an individual accountability framework and the SEER regime has now completed the parliamentary process and the legislation was signed by the President in mid-March. We don't have an exact date as yet as to when it's all going to take effect, but the Department of Finance has indicated it expects the legislation to be in full effect before the end of the year. Now that's three, if not six months earlier than most people in the sector had previously believed to be the case. So if you're an employer that hasn't yet properly geared up your planning around the SEER regime, There's quite a lot of work to be done here in at most nine months. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let's turn now to the main case for today's review, and that's Marina and Laurelwood Montessori. The core issue at the centre of this case was the statutory protection available for employees against penalisation where they make a protected disclosure in the workplace. Or to put it another way, the right not to be treated less favourably or victimised for having blown the whistle in the workplace. If you think about it, unless the protection around penalisation is robustly defended in this legislation and in case law, well then employees will never be prepared to blow the whistle in regard to anything they spot in the workplace. So it is important that the case law properly defends this. Let's look at the nuts and bolts as to how a penalisation claim works in practice before we get into the facts of this case, because I think it will help put the case in greater context. A protected disclosure is a disclosure by a worker of relevant information, which in the reasonable belief of the worker points to a relevant wrongdoing in the workplace. In making a protected disclosure, the employee must share more than just an allegation. It must share information pointing to the relevant wrongdoing. And as long as the employee can show they held a reasonable belief as to the relevant wrongdoing, then it doesn't actually matter if what they put forward ultimately turns out to be untrue or false. Relevant wrongdoing is defined in the legislation and there's an exhaustive list as to what will constitute a relevant wrongdoing. I won't go into the full detail of it now because it's quite lengthy, but just to give you a sense of what would be considered a relevant wrongdoing, the legislation talks about, for example, an offence being committed or is likely to be committed, 
the miscarriage of justice being committed or is likely to be committed, or damage to the environment being committed or is likely to be committed. And to look at the facts of this particular case, the relevant wrongdoing that Miss Marina brought up was that the health and safety of an individual was being or was likely to be endangered in the workplace. The relevant wrongdoing must also be disclosed to a specified party. And in most cases, the first port of call will be to the employer. But in certain circumstances, there's a list of specified third parties as well. And as we'll see in the facts of this case, the specified third party that she raised the information with was the HSE. One unique feature of this particular case was that the whistleblowing issue she raised concerned her own personal safety as well. And that too can be a protected disclosure. We know from the Supreme Court decision in Baranya in November 2021 that an employee can raise a protected disclosure relating to their own interests. This particular gap has been narrowed a little bit by the new legislation, but it is generally accepted now that as long as the employee can show that the issue they have raised doesn't relate to them exclusively and can potentially impact on others also, that it can still constitute a protected disclosure. Penalisation is defined in the old legislation as including suspension, layoff, demotion, dismissal, penalty or reprimand, or generally speaking, any act to the employee's detriment. And as I said at the outset, the scope of this definition has now been extended even further in the new legislation by listing a number of additional examples. Where an employee brings a claim for penalisation under the protected disclosure legislation, the initial burden of proof is on the employee. And they must show A, there has been a protected disclosure and B, they suffered a detriment as a result of raising that protected disclosure. Where they can tick both of these boxes, the burden then shifts to the employer to show that the detriment that they suffered was not due to the protected disclosure. And the standard we follow in this type of analysis goes back to a case under the health and safety legislation from 2010, a case called O'Neill and Tony and Guy Blackrock. In that case, the Rights Commissioner indicated that an employer must show credible evidence on the balance of probabilities that the protected act did not influence the detriment imposed. So it certainly leaves room for an employer to show that even if the employee did suffer a disadvantage, as long as it wasn't as a result of raising the protected disclosure, well then that won't constitute a penalisation for the purposes of the act. In practice, we refer to this test as the but-for test. It's not the most imaginative title, but it gives you a sense of how it works before an adjudication officer. The employee must show that but for they had made the protected disclosure, they wouldn't have been dismissed or they wouldn't have been demoted, etc. Hopefully we haven't lost too many of you along the way as we went down that legal rabbit hole, but it will give you a greater sense of the facts of this case and how they play out in context. So let's turn now to the facts of the case. Miss Marina was employed as a childcare worker in August 2020 with Laurelwood Montessori. And if you think back, that was in that very short-lived window between the first lockdown and the second lockdown when we thought things might return to some degree of normality. Fast forward a few months to January 2021, and again, if you think back, that was just after the Christmas when we all threw caution to the wind, met up with our families and friends, and COVID spread like wildfire. So as a result, the whole country was sent into a third lockdown, which was even more severe than the earlier one. On the 15th of January, Miss Marina was diagnosed with COVID and as part of what was then the standard contract tracing process, the HSE contacted her. In the course of her call with the HSE, she raised allegations against her employer, suggesting that they had been cutting corners around the COVID protocol 
and had endangered her own health and safety and that of her colleagues. So, looking at the case now, that was the protected disclosure. She relayed information to a specified third party pointing to her relevant wrongdoing. So that was the 15th of January. One whole day later, she received a call from her manager. The manager is identified in the case as Or B, so we'll call her Or B for the purposes of today. One day later, Miss Marina received a call from her manager, who's identified in the case as Or B. And I think we can take it from the facts of the case that in the interim, the HSE had also been in touch with Orby and raised issues regarding the allegations made by Miss Marina. Miss Marina claimed that the call with her manager on the 16th of January was hostile and unpleasant and that she felt she was going to be fired after that call. There is some debate on the evidence as to what exactly was discussed and the tone of the conversation, but the adjudication officer was satisfied on the evidence that she had been criticised for raising the issue with the HSE. As Miss Marina had COVID at the time, she remained on leave for the following number of days. Completely independent of that course of events, on the 19th of January, two of the company directors met to discuss the company's financial situation. Like every other crash, this particular crash relied both on private fees from parents and also public funding from the government for the Montessori services it was providing. It wasn't clear at this point in the lockdown whether the government was going to continue providing the public funding. And on that basis, they had worked out that they only had enough cash to survive until the 29th of January, 10 days later. So drastic measures were required and they decided to implement a number of redundancies. They proceeded on a last-in, first-out basis and on that basis, Miss Marina and four others were selected for redundancy. An important point here is that at this point in time, the directors had no idea of the fact that she had had a call with the HSE or that there had been a call between her and her manager on the 16th of January at which this issue had come up. On the 26th of January, the HR director, who's identified in the case as AK, contacted Miss Marina and advised her that she was being made redundant. Now, in the normal course of events, there clearly would be questions over the manner in which she was made redundant in one phone call without any sort of consultation process. But because Miss Marina didn't have... 12-month service to bring a regular unfair dismissal claim, that question didn't come up. AK also claimed on evidence that she was unaware of the protected disclosure or that there had been a conversation between her and Orby on the 16th of January as well. For the sceptics amongst you at this point who think you know exactly what did happen, this just gets better. On the 28th of January, two days after having been made redundant, Miss Marina wrote to the HR director requesting that the decision be appealed. She raised this appeal on two grounds. Firstly, she claimed that she was being directly penalised for having raised a protected disclosure. And secondly, she pointed out that other employees had been hired that very same month, which undermines any sort of argument around this being a cost-cutting measure. One day later, on the 29th of January, the HR director wrote back to Miss Marina. She explained that there had been an internal misunderstanding and that actually the role was still there for her that the public funding which they had not expected to arrive had actually come through on the 28th of January, so the company could still maintain her in the role. The next point she made in the same communication to me smacks a little bit too much of the lady doth protest too much, because what she said was that the decision to retain her in the role and overturn the redundancy was not in any way connected to the appeal. Initially, Miss Marina was quite pleased with this outcome, but actually by the 3rd of February, she wrote to the creche to say she wouldn't be returning to work due to the manner in which she had been treated and because she no longer trusted her employer. So she effectively resigned. 
Let's have a look now at what the adjudication officer had to say about all of this. Firstly, she started from the point that there clearly had been a protected disclosure. On the facts of this case, I suppose that was straightforward enough. But in many of these cases, there can be quite a lot of debate as to whether a complaint was made to begin with, and secondly, whether that complaint constituted a protected disclosure. She then broke the allegations down into two separate allegations of penalisation. Firstly, the dismissal, and secondly, the call with her manager on the 16th of January. On the dismissal piece, she concluded that it was clear the directors had no knowledge whatsoever of the HSE call or the call with her manager on the 16th of January. There was no evidence of Malafides or of her being targeted in any way for having raised the protected disclosure. And on that basis, you simply couldn't conclude that the dismissal resulted wholly or mainly from the protected disclosure. So looking at the overall case, the employer had successfully defended probably the the higher value aspect of the overall claim. She then looked at the call between the employee and her manager on the 16th of January. And she concluded on the evidence that the call clearly was a hostile reprimand and that this did constitute penalisation. And she awarded her €3,000 for this aspect of the claim. So any of you who've listened to these case reviews before will know what we like to do at the end of each case is ask, well, what does this mean for you as an employer in Ireland? And there's a number of points I think we can take from this one also. Some of them are definitely positive, but there are one or two concerning points. Firstly, the decision is a very insightful, helpful decision in educating employers as to the kind of stepped decision-making process that an adjudication officer will go through in assessing a claim for penalisation. It's also really positive to see the emphasis on the but-for element of the penalisation claim. We see a large number of these type of claims coming into our clients, and it's clear that employees very often overlook the extent to which they have to draw out a causal connection between the protected disclosure and the act of penalisation. They have to be able to show that the employer actually took this step because I raised a protected disclosure. And I think if employers concentrate on that point, they'll actually see that there's much greater scope to successfully defend these claims than sometimes they think, as we've seen in this particular claim. There's definitely a trend in the labour market in the last 12 months, and I think you could say it has increased even further since the 1st of January this year with the new definition of penalisation, where more and more employees are bringing protected disclosure claims, pointing to all manner of things as penalisation. So it's good for employers to be a step ahead of this and understand how they can defend it. When you look at the dismissal aspect of this case, that's definitely a robust decision for employers. Anybody looking at the facts of this case at first glance would raise an eyebrow. They do look suspicious. However, by criminal law standards, you might say it's no more than circumstantial evidence. Because when you drill down into it, the employer was able to truthfully show that the person who made the decision to make her redundant knew nothing about the protected disclosure. So however suspicious it may have looked, it actually turned out to be a lot more innocent in reality. The most concerning part of this claim, however, is the finding that she had been penalised in the manner in which the phone call took place on the 16th of January. I think that conclusion is unexpected in that it does seem to push the boundaries a little as to what would or should constitute penalisation. Now, obviously each claim is going to be decided on its own facts and there are ways and means as to how employers should engage with employees. Likewise, employers shouldn't be coming down the heavy on employees that have raised protected disclosures. However, It does seem to be pushing the boundaries 
almost too far to conclude that a stern word between a manager and an employee could be considered penalisation. If that is now the basis that we're starting from, I think it significantly lowers the bar for employees as to what is penalisation. And I think this could create a worrying trend, a precedent for other employees looking at this case and deciding whether or not to bring a claim for penalisation. It is just one decision at this point in time, and I think it's one we'll have to keep an eye on over the next 12 months to see, does the WRC pick up on this as the next starting point? Or do we see more and more employees bringing cases at this level claiming penalisation? So that concludes today's case review. We will be back in the coming weeks with another case review. Thank you all for your time and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.